the views and comments of the Justice Clapback are not those of this radio station, its owners, its management, employees, or affiliates. They are solely the expressed views of the Justice Clapback and its host and guests. Thank you. And now it's time for the Justice Clapback with the Rev, Kirsten John Foy. Praise the Lord and good morning, good morning, good morning, Clapback family. It's good to be with you another Sunday morning. It's a hopefully where you are a bright and sunny day, if not with respect to climate. At least with respect to your attitude and your disposition, we are in the grips and the midst of a global pandemic. But this past week has shown some cause or hope. Hope is on the horizon. For some of us, we are still reticent and hesitant with the news that is emerging almost on a daily basis. Company after company, pharmaceutical after pharmaceutical, announcing that they have a vaccine. We're going to talk about that today. We've moved past the election. We've got the runoff election in Georgia for the United States Senate with both Reverend Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff who are running to fill those seats. It's important that we remember Georgia and we keep Georgia on the fore of our minds with respect to this election. Let me just say this. The Biden victory is incomplete without these two Senate seats in Georgia. Without giving this new administration, the legislative heft of a Democrat-controlled Senate to join a Democrat-controlled House, we are going to suffer through much of the same stagnation and partisan rancor that we have seen over the last several years. In fact, we may see an escalation in partisanship with no ally in the White House and a slim margin in the Senate, Mitch McConnell may decide he's not going to do anything. 
to help this president and this presidency to be successful. There's precedent for that. Mitch McConnell decided on day one that he was not going to support President Barack Obama, that he was going to do everything in his power, not to better the nation, not to strengthen the nation, not to make her healthier, wealthier, or wiser, but that he would do everything within his power to stop Barack Obama from getting reelected president. That was his one and only priority. If we see that same attitude pervade this go-round, we may see exacerbated partisanship. So it is important that we complete the Biden-Harris victory by adding these two seats in Georgia. So we're going to be keeping our eye on Georgia. We're welcoming some new stations in Georgia to the Clapback family. We're expanding our footprint. We're sending Stacey Abrams and them some backup. The cavalry is on the way. But today we're going to focus a little bit on the news of the day. And we've got some serious firepower in the house with us this morning. We've got some serious brain power. This brother has a long and storied history of clinical research. He is on the fore of epidemiology and the research going into the efficacy of vaccines. He was on the team that developed the vaccine for the H1N1 virus. And now he's back again doing the people's work, doing God's work, fighting back against coronavirus. And this brother joins us tonight in none other than the person of Dr. Charles Wright. What's up, Doc? Dr. Charles Wright, Senior Clinical Research Scientist, Principal of Right Way Consulting. All of the big boys, the big pharmaceuticals, they all got to talk to Dr. Wright. And it just so happens that Dr. Wright 
has, thank God, in his career, been more right than wrong. <laughs> Doc, thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for lending us your time and your expertise. The folk got a lot of questions, Doc. We got a lot of questions about coronavirus. We're in the midst of a second wave or a third wave. Or I don't know if we ever finished the first wave. But we are in the grips nationally. We are seeing the numbers skyrocketing across the nation. If you look at a map of coronavirus infections, a color-coded map, all of the country is red, which means we are seeing increases in positive rates of infection all across the nation. The one place we are seeing a decline is Georgia, thank God. Uh, they're doing something right. Continue to do whatever you're doing in Georgia. If it's social distancing and mask wearing and do all of that and double down because the rest of the country is losing it. Doc, how do you see our position? We've just surpassed a very grim and catastrophic milestone of 250,000 deaths, Americans that is. We passed a very grim and catastrophic milestone of 11 million Americans infected. We have seen this pandemic engulf the world with tens of millions of infections. What do we need to do to reverse the trend and are the vaccines the answer? Well, thank you very much, Brother Kristen, for the very kind and um, pleasant um, intro. So let's start at the beginning. Um, Viruses occur naturally, and not all of them will be partakers of a pandemic or epidemic nature. And we have history to support this. So I was having a conversation a couple days ago, and I was expressing to just regular folk about vaccines and viruses, and they've said they've never heard of viruses before. This is why is this so special? Why is this so different? So the simple answer is you have heard of viruses, you just don't remember or you weren't aware that's what they were. We had an influenza virus in 1918 that killed over 50 million people. Mm. So influenza, 50 million people. And lasted a year, roughly a year, and we don't think about it as a virus, we don't think about it as anything because we live with the flu 
and we get flu vaccines, those who participate in that, and we're able to contain it and minimize it. So this was the Spanish flu pandemic that you're referring to? Yes. Yeah, exactly. 50 million people. Not Americans, but globally. Globally, but Americans were almost 700,000. So almost a million Americans died in 19, what was it, 1980, the Spanish? 1918 to 1919. 1918 to 1919, and that is the, the, the measure, that's the model that it seems to be that the Trump administration is using as a baseline. Exactly. So if that's the baseline, we should expect another half a million deaths, according to the guys, right? The, the problem with the Trump administration even though he has capable people around him, the president is currently not using any of the information or scientific data to support what he says. And I found out just recently that he hasn't been to any of the pandemic meetings and I believe I heard it was six weeks, which is unheard of for a leader to be doing that. Um, sadly enough, when we really look at the data from current day and dealing with the flu influenza, only 22,000 people died last year. 19, uh, 2019, only 22,000 roughly. Now, I, I don't wish anyone to succumb to any one of these illnesses because of the, the value of life and the pain that it causes their loved ones and families. But that shows you how far we've come. So this gets into the vaccine discussion. I will start with the Belmont report with most people know as the Tuskegee experiment. Now the Tuskegee experiment was done at a time where there weren't the same oversights that exist today. And the Tuskegee um, issue and problem with that clinical research, and I'm using clinical research in air quotes, was done by these wicked people who took advantage of a population for their own self-interest. There was no long-term benefit. There was no identifiable reason to do it other than wickedness. Now that being said, that lasted from the mid-40s up until the mid-70s. So once the identification that this was going on, we then had a change in the way clinical research was done. Now, this wasn't the only place that it was done. It was also done in Nuremberg and Helsinki. So people doing horrible things of the other um, mankind has always been in existence. So in this what leads to the Belmont Report, which identified this and from that report, changes were made immediately into clinical research. Um, changes were made from the Belmont report in 1979 to now where 
the oversight on clinical trials, the access to knowledge about whatever clinical trial you're participating, the access to also decline to participate. Even if you were to go into a clinical trial, you, for no reason, no excuse, you say, you know what? I don't feel like doing it. You can just leave. There's no coercion. There's nothing. You can just leave. The biggest thing would be that if you did partake and you received some type of dosing or medication or something like that, that they just follow up with you via phone call, via Zoom call over a year or so period. So it's a much safer process, it's much more monitored process, it has more responsibility to the patient. And even if it was a child who was in the study, a person who doesn't speak English, the opportunity for them to know what they're getting into is designed in the informed consent, which they can read, they can have someone read it to them, it can be translated, there's many ways, but no one should be going into a clinical trial unless they know everything about it. And it's not written in a way that it is, you have to have a medical degree to understand it. It's written in a way for a common man to understand it. So if they said the, the vaccine, they'll say the vaccine is like a tablespoon of medication going into your arm via a needle. It'll be something very simple like that. And they'll say, well, you, you could have bruising at the site. You may have a low-grade fever. And it's, it's explained out in a very... Um, common language. So here we are now with this virus. I just have a quick question. Do Please. They, they screen for so-called co comorbidities and pre-existing yes. conditions and they do and make a determination about whether or not you're qualified for these clinical trials or is it just okay? I wanna, I wanna do this. I, I, you know, I feel a, um, an unction. I wanna serve my country. I wanna serve humanity. I, this is the way I wanna do it. I wanna participate in a clinical trial. Um, but I have diabetes or I have heart disease. Do you then? screen that person out typically or are they then put into a category as um, a volunteer with this particular comorbidity and then you test how the vaccine interacts with that person or the effect it has on that person. Is there is there a, a metric or an index of qualifications and, and data points that people have to meet before they are actually um, admitted into a clinical trial? Yes, it's a, it's a pretty stringent process. So there's an inclusion criteria and an exclusion criteria. And you have to meet every one of them. You cannot have some, some of one and some of the other. You have to meet every single one of those. So that would even be, so I'll give an example, which is giving the detail that we go into. If a woman was taking part in the study, and she was, we asked about this, your sexual history, are you currently in a relationship? And is your partner 
uh, is he healthy? Like, we get the details of their partner, much less themselves, in case she were to become pregnant on the study. We asked for multiple forms of birth control to be used that are identified. So if you have any type of comorbidity, if you have any, any um, con meds like medication that you have to take for other illnesses or treatments, we will identify that in the inclusion and exclusion criteria before you can have any chance of getting in. So it is a pretty stringent um, criteria for anyone to get in the study. And this is where, like, rightfully, we need people of color to understand this because there is a place, and I put this emphasis on everything we do, if we're only studying, let's say, white men for any type of drug we're taking, you don't know how it's going to impact a person who is of African-American descent, Caribbean-American, Latino. Not everybody's genotypes are the same. So there are some things that need to be uh, identified and understood and how drugs going to react to different genotypes and different people. So it's very important to make sure that during these type of trials that we're getting a nice swap of the community at large. And we're now moving into where we are today, dealing with COVID. So COVID obviously hit the United States pretty hard, uh, especially in the Northeast, as well as Seattle, the Northwest. The, both the Northeast and the Northwest did really good once they got a handle on what was happening. Once they got a handle on how quickly the virus spread, how the virus spread, and ways to con contract that um, illnesses, it made a huge difference in the way they dealt with it going forward. So, Kirsten, you, you're clearly aware because you're in the New York area, you know, a highly dense population, mass transit like no other state in the, in the Union, and people living literally on top of one another because of high-rise buildings, whether... It can be, you know, a high-rise condo in, in Manhattan, or it could be a project in the Bronx. So we are looking at how U.S. countries, excuse me, U.S. cities and states addressed it. New York City took an approach that was immediate and define a reasonable response from people who had the COVID-19 as well as protecting people who did not have it. From New York City went from the highest rates to the lowest rates. It happened within three months. Back up. Right. But it's, it's, it's expected to come back up, and I'll give you the reason why that occurs. So we went, they went from the highest rate to the lowest rate, where it was below 1%. At the same time, it was understandable New York would be so vigilant about protecting themselves and their fellow community because they saw the death firsthand. 
I don't think there's a person in New York who does not know of someone who died from COVID or minimally was hospitalized from COVID. And just because you didn't die, that doesn't mean you don't have a lifelong illness that you're going to have to now take care of that you did not have um, previously. Those, those, um, those folks are called long haulers, right? Those who have prolonged symptoms and the virus, uh, then they have not fully recovered um, physiologically from the uh, the virus. They are still dealing with uh, very traumatic and intense, in many cases, uh, symptoms um, that would resemble someone who was just infected. Is that not right? That is true. And so the death toll is one thing, but when you look at the long-term illness of many other people who contracted COVID, they're not going to have a quality of life day where they can be mobile, where they can be active, where they can enjoy things the way they did prior to. You know, there's a big focus on people coming with underlying symptoms, but there are many who got COVID had no underlying symptoms. So it's still a virus that we're learning more and more about, and we will have better remedies and ways of treatment to address some of the things that have condemned so many of these patients. And this this is where we get to the current vaccine. Because the vaccine, I have to always remind people, it does, it's not a cure. It's a preventative measure. Right. It's a preventative measure, that's it. Right. Now, the fact that the rates of the vaccines are in the high, high 90s, 94, 95, that's a great thing to see. That means it's responding well, and this is where I think the confusion comes in. When you listen to the president and the way he responds and the way he speaks and he addresses the virus, it, it questions my mind, why would a person who knows the truth, I mean, he can't say he doesn't know the truth because I think the Mike, I forgot, it wasn't Mike Wallace, but I forgot. You have a difficult time speaking it. Yeah. Um, the, the truth doesn't change, as you know. So, That's right. when, when he speaks it, I don't know if he trying to get cozy with the conspiracy theorist. I don't know if he doesn't recognize the, the depth of truly understanding it, but I do know he, he knows the, how ravishing it is to the community. This man said, inject disinfectant. Didn't, didn't, I didn't, 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 oh, this thing kills it, right? Uh, shouldn't we? I mean, put it in a, you know, I don't know, we're, we're looking at that. That's what he said. That's what he said. Dr. Burks sitting in the White House press briefing room. But I want to get to, because you, you, you touched on this, you touched on a couple of things that, that we really need to get into. The, we are in no, we have no shortage of conspiracies. Without question. With respect to COVID, 
and then also vaccine. Of right? course. The, the, the conspiracy theorists out there, and I'm not, this is not a judgment, I'm not discounting, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, this is just, we're just saying what it is. There's some who are saying this is a man-made virus that got released from a Chinese, you know, laboratory and, you know, it was, it's a biological weapon. We have some that say this is big pharma and this is, you know, the billionaires who are trying to figure out how to, you know, how to make more money. Population. The other billionaires that want population control and, you know, the super billionaires that, you know, I mean, there's no shortage of conspiracies. And then we have our own beliefs about vaccines. Right, with vaccines, oh, you know, they're gonna put a chip in the vaccine so they can track you. And first of all, I'm not saying whether it's right or wrong, because I'm not a virologist. I don't, I'm not a senior clinical researcher or scientist, but they don't need to put a chip in you. It's called a phone. That's I that's a, that's my answer every time. I mean, you I know you've had this experience. Pick up your phone, you're about to type something that you you want to try to purchase or have information, and the whole word comes up. You only put a couple letters in. So what you want, right? And we're running out. This is the best one. Um, we're running out to get the newest phone, new iPhone, new Samsung, whatever, new Motorola now, the new flip phone. Gotta have it. And, and, but we're worried that the vaccine's gonna put 5G in our body. You're buying the device that puts the 5G. So, it's, it's amusing in that regard, but it's serious in this one point. If we cannot protect ourselves and we don't have faith within, and faith is too strong of a word, we don't have confidence in the fact that we are being um, treated with the best possible medical care that we can. And I will say this. Many people who are listening have friends and family who work in the healthcare system. It's a thankless job most of the time. No one's getting a pat on the back for creating a vaccine. Nobody's getting a pat on the back for changing a bedpan. No one's getting a pat on the back for doing Essential workers and first responders. Mad love, major shout outs to all of y'all who are on the front lines, who are, who are battling back this disease, and those of you who are in the laboratory innovating. We want to give y'all our thanks and our appreciation. If you don't hear it nowhere else, remember to clap back, showed y'all some love, gave you a pat on your back. Pat on the back, but you you touched on something, and that's, and this is dear to my heart. I have met family members who are physicians, nurses, and every form of medical profession you can find. The thing that is important for people to understand, these people go out and they care for people, put their own lives at risk, put their own families at risk, put their marriages at risk. They put so much at risk because they really believe they're making a difference. 
you know, if you were to see a shift end at any hospital in the USA and see the workers walking off, they're not skipping off. They they had a they were on their feet all day. They were busting their butt all day, working trying to help patients. And patients come, you know, broken. You know, not just physically, but mentally. You know, emotionally damaged. And so, you want to be in a situation where you have people who are doing their best in the weakest moment in your existence. You know, anytime you have a really ill family member and all the dynamics that can go on without any medical intervention, once you add the medical intervention, it can be quite a troubling time. So I say that to let People who have, we'll, we'll start with conspiracy theories. We don't have to name them all, but you pretty much know what they are. There's no chip, there's no 5G going in a virus. That's just not necessary. Um, there's not a mind control, it's not to extinguish the um, the black man, the black woman, the black family is not that. But what it is, if you were to look on, and not everybody does this, but I do this myself, if you were to look on conspiracy theory websites, a lot of the stuff that is permeating in our community starts on the far right far right, the extremist websites. And no one challenges the veracity of what they're saying. You know, all of this stuff is happening and there's no, there's no video. Like, we have video of people doing things that we presumed were happening, but we didn't know. There's no documentation, and generally when you see it, it resembles an official document, but if you look a little bit closer, you're like, yeah, that's kind of looks forged, it looks contrite. So I look at this as a turning point and a challenge to our community. Well, we have enough. Go ahead. We, we have seen over the last three weeks, and then we have to, um, in a couple minutes, we have to, have to say goodbye to our Minneapolis clapback family. Uh, but we're going to continue on uh, with uh, the rest of our family around the nation. But before we. Um, say peace out to Minneapolis. Uh wanna get in here real quick. We have seen Pfizer uh come back and say our vaccine ninety percent, then they came back and said ninety-five percent. Moderna says our vaccine ninety-five percent. I believe AstraZeneca is also uh coming out so it seems to be on a daily basis is there's this steamroll of pharmaceuticals who are coming out saying not only have we developed the vaccine but we have a good one yeah is this cause for hope for those of us that are willing to accept what you're saying on face value that writ large vaccines are good for us individually and good for humanity are these uh, clinical trials understanding this was all coming out of operation warp speed uh, real quick are these uh, clinical trials and are these um efficacy ratings and and percentages 
do they give us a light at the end of the tunnel? So I will say this. I would say yes. They do give us a light at the end of the tunnel. But they're not the only tool in the kit that we need to be successful as a, as a community and as a country. So there are therapeutics that we, we should also be looking to uh, fold into our uh, repertoire and our arsenal to fight coronavirus. Well, this is, I yes, there is, and I'll say it's a multi, multi, um, facet approach. So the virus is only going to protect patients up to a 90 to 95 percent, basically for you want the healthcare workers to be protected, you want the elderly to be protected, to minimize their risk. But also, we still need to do social distancing. We still need to practice very simple um, discipline, and that's the issue. Are we going to be disciplined? I'll use the perfect example. Seatbelt saves lives, but thousands of people die in car accidents from not wearing seatbelts. Right. It, it, it doesn't take away from your manhood, it doesn't take from your constitution of being a good human being, but people still don't wear seatbelts. So that's how you have to look at it. Mm-hmm. And then the second part, me, is we as a community. We got to get better in how we take care of ourselves nutritionally. You know, are we exercising? Do we know our numbers? Right. You know, that's a, that's a very simple thing. And I, I, I know we've had a conversation similar to this before, but the fact that you can take care of HIV easier than you can take care of diabetes says a lot about how we really feel about ourselves would you also agree and we're going to say uh minneapolis love y'all god bless y'all we're going to see y'all uh next sunday uh uh but for the rest of the country stick with us we still have some more to talk about with the with the doc. Um, we, you know, we have seen, I think, um, in our community, such a disregard for the value of our lives, right? By the healthcare system, by what? criminal justice system, by the educational system. We have been failed by most public service systems that have been, um, uh, that have been uh, instituted in our nation. And, and in fact, we have been targeted for uh, uh, discriminatory outcomes uh, with respect to public health and criminal justice um, disparage disparate outcomes what do we need to do uh, in our own community because you, you touched on nutrition. Now we can go into this whole, that's a rabbit hole in and of itself. In and of itself. Food deserts and our access to food. Well, uh, what, do, what, what, do you, uh, what do you see as our pathway forward with respect to these other comorbidities and these other issues which are exacerbating our 
um, our response and our reaction um, as a community to COVID-19 and 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 COVID uh, coronavirus now, but what about the virus that's 10 years and 20 years and 50 years down the road? I'm glad you said that. I think I think we're this is the discussion that has to be had in every every dining table, every countertop. This has to happen, and this is with everybody. I'm gonna use terms that I use in my own family. So if we have grandma and we have big mama and we have pop pops, we got Uncle Leslie or whomever, we have to be in a place where we're talking about everyone's health. The same way we talk about whatever program we like watching, the same way we talk about whatever pop news we like listening to, the same way we talk about whatever hit song we like listening to, we have to have conversations about our family's health. Hey, how's uncle doing? I, you know, I, I, I heard he was diagnosed with diabetes. What is, what is he taking? What is he doing? You know, I had an auntie who was in the hospital not too long ago, and she just got out. And, you know, every day, my cousin would give me updates of where she, what she was doing, what she was going through. And, you know, God bless her. She got out of the hospital. She did really well, did not get COVID while she was in the hospital. So I was very happy for that because she's an elderly woman. But we're not having the real talk, you know, the, 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 the discussion about being big bolded versus being a diabetic, we got to have a real discussion about weight. And I don't think everybody needs to be a size six, seven, eight. I mean, there's a lot of different sizes, but it's the way that your cholesterol, what your number is. Your way, what's your what's your blood pressure? What's your numbers? You know, that's a a discussion that's going to be generational change. That's that's gonna be an understanding of what should I be eating. You know, fast food, fast food. Every now and then I eat fast food myself. But a lot of times I've had to make decisions to be healthier and set the example for my own kids. You know, everybody likes a burger or fried chicken or whatever it is. But then you also gotta know set limits. You also gotta know how you are fueling your body this divine body that God gave you, how you're feeling it. Everyone's not, doesn't look the same. Everybody's not a Ferrari. Some people are trucks, some people are buses, but we all have to put the right, proper fuel in so that we can have an existence. You know, for the first time, life expectancy has gone down. For the first time in history, life expectancy has gone down. Is it a result of coronavirus or is it really? No, it's, it's not coronavirus. It was prior to coronavirus, but it's just that the quality of life that we, we were living. And is that the case in America and Europe and Asia, or is it just an American thing that we are seeing? Just, just the United States, and primarily men. You know, heart attacks are, are a real serious issue, and we're not taking care of ourselves the way we need to. That's just where it comes down to. And a lot more jobs are sedentary, where you're not moving. So if you're not, you know, there were times you could make a living by working in the factory and doing, you know, 
manual labor, you could be landscaping, whatever, and you'll get up and get out. But a lot of men, including myself, you know, I, I sit down 10, 11 hours a day working. You know, I have to force myself to get up and once we get off this call, I'm going to go upstairs and get on the wrong machine just you know, get my cardio in. Well, let it's me a different you. mindset. Stay at your desk until we get past this thing, and I'll just make sure you go and swim fast or get you some, you know, some juices or send you a blender. Um, but I had a question. My father called me today. He's a vet. Yeah. And he says he got call. He got a phone call from the vet. Right. He says to me, they called and said um, they have this the vaccine, and if I want to be in a trial, if I want to take it. You know, take it earlier. What should I do? My father's 82. Um, he's on medication for uh, high blood pressure. Okay. He's a relatively healthy guy. He's still he's still very active. Um. Still very um, energetic, um, but he's 82 years old, and Bet is calling him saying, uh, "If you want to, we can give you the vaccine." Yeah, I'm sitting here saying, "Wait a minute, no, wait a second. First of all, I don't know if I want my pops. <laughs> so, you know, study, I don't know if I'm not, you know, uh, we all black folks in the back of our mind, we all got, what do you call it, the, the Belmont Report? Yes. We all got <laughs> the Belmont Report ingrained in our, in our, you know, genetic memory. We know what Tuskegee was about. We carry the the prejudices and the biases that 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 come out of that experiment. We carry it with us. We're taught about it in our homes. We're not certainly not taught about it in schools. Not in school, right? which is a shame because. What came from that, I mean, literally, the Belmont Report is the premier report talking about the behaviors of people conducting clinical trials, and from that, informed consents were derived from that. So, it is a an example that something that happened to people of color that has now changed the whole industry. There's very few industries that respond the way clinical research does. So it is a, it's not stagnant, it's a living, moving industry that grows and changes and, and, and morphs into different things as it needs to to be better. I always gotta tell people that yes, these companies make a lot of money. So I'm not gonna pretend like they're out here starving. They're billion dollar industries. Right? Y'all gotta you gotta you gotta have some sick people if you wanna make this medicine now. So but this is the thing. The the reason that sometimes people get confused because they don't realize how much the trials cost. The cost of the trials are very expensive. So that, that kind of return is high. 
But at the same time, certain things are not going to make these companies rich. A vaccine is not going to make um, any Pfizer wealthier. I mean, they're already wealthy. They're, they're going to do well anyway. The thing is, the opportunity to have all those people who are working on their studies. So you have Pfizer, you have Moderna, you have AstraZeneca, and there's easily six to seven more coming out. I mean, there's quite a few of them coming out. These studies are run by people who really want to do a good job because for it to be something that was going to be uh, to harm people. That means that the doctors in the hospitals want to harm their own patients. The patients who volunteer are volunteering to be harmed. That's why the relationship with your own personal doctor, relationship with your medical provider, needs to be paramount so that we can develop the trust there is an understanding and it's reasonable to see that there is a disconnect. It's reasonable. I'm not challenging that. But what I do challenge is that we need to educate our community in a way that we have the community doctor or doctors or nurse practitioners or physician assistants. Well, that, we have relationships with them. That, Dr. Ray, you about to become Black America's primary uh, epidemiologist, virology, senior scientific clinical researcher. You, Black America, had just adopted you. But, um, but, but do I tell my father? Okay, do I say, because he's going to, he, if I say, Dad, I don't know, they about to drop a chip in you. <laughs> no, they're not. But I'll say this. I, Kirsten, we can, we can take this offline. I will definitely speak with your dad and we can make a decision that will be beneficial for you and your family. And that's how I will tell everybody to do it. I'm going to get the I'll have the vaccine. I'll take to get the vaccine before Thanksgiving. I guarantee you that. You're going to do it. I'm definitely going to do it. I know, I know the Pfizer team. I know the AstraZeneca team. I don't know the Moderna team. But, again, it is a, it's a quality... And it's an altruistic view of doing your work. The people who work on these studies, they, they've gone to school for over a decade. They have worked in these adverse conditions. When, because anytime a pandemic or any type of illness becomes political, it changes everything. You know, and I was going to add one thing. The whole warp speed thing that the president talks about is giving access to funds. So Pfizer came out and actually said, oh, we did not participate in warp speed. The president didn't say anything for a while, and what he did was to provide funding for the distribution part of it. That's not creating the vaccine. That's not creating the vaccine. That's just a distribution. So there was not a, 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 a truncated uh, timeline for research and study and development of this vaccine. They didn't do it. Like that, I mean, the FDA approval process, we all know as to be a very protracted process. It takes years to get approval for new drugs and new therapeutics. And here we are a year 
into this thing, right? Not even a roughly, year. yeah. Right, we're 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 roughly eleven months, eleven months into the first pandemic, a global pandemic of this magnitude in a in a hundred years, and eleven months into this thing, we have pharmaceutical company after pharmaceutical company dropping vaccines like you know. Like Skittles, like boom, we got a ninety percent efficacy. We got ninety five, well, we got ninety seven. I mean, it's so that's we shouldn't be skeptical about this timeline and how quickly these things are being developed. You know, it does lead into the conspiracy theories. Many of them who believe that this was all planned and they had the vaccine before they released the virus. Well, I definitely understand why you would think that if you if you didn't know how um, viral and vaccines are created. If you didn't know the original timeline, the timeline is generally around 12 months because they, viruses don't last that long. So you're going to be in a person gets infected, that's a 10 to 14 day for most patients. Now, some way will succumb to, you know, unfortunately, but some patients may have long term. But the general population, so it has to turn over very quickly. And so if you get 5,000 patients in, you get 10,000 patients in, and they're going through your first day, you inoculate 1,000 patients over the 50 states and over the, the hundreds of hundreds of thousands of cities, that number becomes smaller. So New York City, I mean, there are many medical facilities in New York City where people who were really ill said, I want this. I want to get, I want to be a part of this. I know nurses, I know doctors who, who, who participated in the trial. So one of the things that a virus trial like this 